Uh, So as we come before that truth this morning, will you open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. We are in the middle of the Passion Week. Jesus has entered in what we call the triumphal entry to the praises of thousands. He has cleared out the temple, driving away the money changers and those who are buying and selling. He has been approached by the religious leaders as he teaches and as he heals in that temple, and they question him with regard to his authority. Who are you to say and do the things that you do? And of course, he does not answer them because they're not looking for an answer. Instead, he questions them about where John got his authority. Instead, he gives to them three parables uh, that don't explain who he is. He gives them three parables that explain really who they are, the depth of their rejection, the depth of their failure to comprehend who the Messiah is. And then over the last several weeks, we've seen their return, their response to him. The Pharisees come and they challenge him, uh, first of all, with regard to uh, not his authority, because they've already tried that, but how will you handle a question about taxes? Something that could potentially be very sticky, uh, regardless of which way he answered. Then the Sadducees come and they ask him about resurrection and marriage, something that they weren't even interested in, but that they thought might trip him up. And then last week, Charlie took us through a question about the greatest commandment of the law. A lawyer comes asking about the law, and you know that uh, the game is afoot, as it were. But Jesus answers perfectly. If you were to sum up the whole of the law, it would come down to these two things, love God and love others. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all that you are. And maybe they would be able to kind of grasp that. We know we're called to love God. That does come out clearly. But that second part, to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus pulls really a fragment of a passage from Leviticus 19 and says that is the second great hook on which the whole law hangs. And they would have never come up with that, not if you gave them a thousand years. But if we step back and if we look at it from a 30,000-foot view, how much sense does that make? The two great commands, love the God who formed and created you and love other men created in his image. What part of the law is not commentary on one of those two things? That's all that it is. The law tells us what it looks like to love God and to love others. It exposes our failure as we don't love God the way that we should, and we don't love others in the way that we should. And so, uh, of course, they're silenced. They have nothing to say to that. But Charlie brought this point out, and it bears repeating because we have to get this. Uh, If you don't share the same goal as God, you are going to miss it when he acts, and you are going to be continually frustrated by your circumstances. If you assume that God shows his love to you by good health, a full bank account, and peaceful relationships, then spiritual shipwreck is only a heartbreak, a heartache, an argument away. And you are constantly on the verge of spiritual disappointment and despair. But if the greatest thing that God wants for us is to be like him, If the greatest thing that can happen to us is that we become more like the God who made us, more like Christ who bought us, then we can begin to see any and every circumstance as being a part of his grand design and sovereign providence that leads us toward that goal. See, we're coming up to a week that started in praise and ends on the cross, and we kind of wonder how we get from here to there. You have to understand the deep frustration. They assumed that they knew what God wanted. They assumed that they knew what God had as a design for a king. And as Jesus fails to meet that expectation, not prophecy, not biblical expectation, but as Jesus fails to meet their expectation, we get this increasing antagonism and resistance and hatred. And that's going to build today as really what we come to is the final question. Jesus is going to ask them the final question, and after this, there's no more interaction. It is very one-sided moving forward. So if you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 41. Today we're going to go all the way to Matthew 22, 41, all the way through 23, verse 12. But I'll read the end of chapter 22 to set the stage for the first part here. Matthew 22, verse 41, this is what God's word says. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. Let's pray. 
Lord, as we come into the final conflicts here, uh, we pray that we would not be blind where the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious rulers and the elders were. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, again, we recognize every time we come before your word that what we bring to the table is not enlightenment and understanding. What we bring to the table is darkness, sin, assumptions, and preferences. Lord, strip all of that away and through the inspiration of your word, draw us to a knowledge of who you are. Lord, what a gracious thing that you would give us your word and your spirit that helps us to understand that word. So Lord, we come to you today full of expectation that your word would not only make sense to us, but that your word would be deeply applicable to our lives. And we ask that you would help us to put these things into practice. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, the expectations of the week have built, and we all know that failed expectations matter. Uh, if you fail to meet expectations at work, you wind up under performance reviews and uh, these makeup plans, and if you don't meet expectations, ultimately you could lose your job. If it's in the classroom setting, the student that fails to meet expectations will fail to pass the class. When we parent our children, if they fail to meet expectations, then there are rightly consequences that remind them that failure has a cost. Well, I don't think we always understand how high expectations are at this time. We read these stories from our perspective, and that's where they are. They're stories. They stay somewhere in the background. But you have to understand that in this week, expectations are higher than they have been in ever. For 400 years, God was essentially silent toward his people. Not a word from prophets. No one saying, thus saith the Lord. And then everything changes. And here comes a man who teaches with an authority that they have never heard before. Here comes someone who can feed the multitudes with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. Here comes a man who can heal the sick, who can raise the dead. And now that man, that one that is unlike anyone they've ever even heard of, is in God's city. He has come into Jerusalem, the place of kings, the place of the temple, the place where all of Jewish history is supposed to culminate. And when they cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, when they cry out and when they call him son of David, he doesn't stop them. He expects and he accepts this praise and this worship. And so every eye and ear and heart around this city at this time is tuned to this messianic expectation and the understanding that something that they have never experienced before is on the verge of happening. The problem is they expect something very different than what is to come. And shattered expectations lead to frustration and bitterness and disappointment. It's why the conflict doesn't go away as we move through the week. It's why it gets bigger. It's why it intensifies. It's why you move from crowds cheering at the triumphal entry on Sunday to a crucifixion later in the week. So now what's going to happen at the closing of this session in the temple? Remember, Jesus has been possessing his temple for the last two days in this week. A little bit longer than that in sermon time. But for the last couple of days in this week, He's going to bring the conclusion to this conflict by asking them a question. And the question at first is designed to really expose and exalt the nature of the Christ. It's a question about the Christ, but it moves beyond their understanding about the Christ to really elevate who it is they ought to be anticipating. First, let's look at that question that they ask in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Remember, the Pharisees sent their disciples with the Herodians to ask him a question, hoping that he would fail, and that was a bust. The Sadducees ask him about marriage, and they wind up looking foolish. Last week, the lawyer comes and asks about the greatest commandment of the law, and Jesus makes the law clear in a way that no lawyer could. It's a remarkable turn. And now the Pharisees are gathered together. Maybe they are thinking through his last answer. Maybe they are plotting their next move. Maybe they are simply gathered together, grumbling and complaining. But now he approaches them. And he says, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And we have to understand, that's not a hard question, certainly not from their minds. This isn't a theological web that they have to untangle. They don't have to go back to their seminary coursework and check through this. And that's why the answer comes fairly quickly. They said to him, the son of David. 
Now that is the right and expected answer when it comes to understanding the Christ, the Messiah. When it comes to understanding who has the legitimate right to rule over God's people Israel, there is only one answer. It is the house and the line of David. And this promise goes back to the Old Testament, specifically uh, to 2 Samuel 7. You don't have to turn there now, but I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel 7 this week. It's one of those good places to know where they're at, just as you familiarize yourself with the Bible, because it's one of those critical covenants that God makes with people. A covenant is a binding promise, and God makes several of them with people as you work through his word. In Genesis 9, it's a covenant with Noah, not even with Noah, with all flesh, that I will not destroy the world again through a flood. And every time you see my rainbow in the sky, you will be reminded of that covenant promise. You move to Genesis 12, and God begins to make his covenant with Abraham that's extended in the coming chapters. I will give you land, I will give you seed, I will make you a great blessing, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's a covenant with Phineas that regards the priesthood and There's a covenant made with Israel in Exodus 19. You, out of all the earth, will be my chosen people. And as you walk in obedience, you will experience blessing and fellowship with Yahweh in a way that no other nation has ever seen. And when we come to 2 Samuel 7, we find another of those covenants called the Davidic covenant, the covenant that God makes with David. David, for the first time in his rule, has peace And as he goes up on the rooftop of his great palace, he sees the tabernacle, the tent, where the presence of the Lord is. And he says, that's not right. I will build for the Lord a temple, a permanent house. And God says, no, David, I'm going to build a house for you. Not a palace, not a physical home, but I'm going to build a line of kings that will come after you. And as you read through the rest of the prophets, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, that promise gets clarified and crystallized, and we see that it's not going to simply be a line of descendants, but that it all points to one singular descendant. That David's children will grow up and most will fail horribly. Some will attain some level of obedience, but they all anticipate this one who is coming that will be completely different. Not a son, but the son. One who will be righteous. One who will be just. One who will rule not only over the, Isra- over the Israel of God, but over all the nations. And that's all true. That is why Matthew opens up his gospel with the words, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It starts there for a reason. Matthew develops this idea that Jesus is the Christ, and as the Christ He has the right to rule because he is from the right family. So they know the answer to the question. The problem is they don't understand how much they don't understand. And to challenge that understanding, Jesus is going to quote from Psalm 110. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 110. Jesus says, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? He sets up his quote from this psalm a couple of important ways. First of all, he says this is that David says something. Whose son is the Christ? The Christ is the son of David. Well, how is it then that David says certain things? So he points us back to Psalm 110, and he tells us that David wrote it, and that matters more on that in a moment. But he says that David didn't simply write it, that this is David in the Spirit that calls him Lord. David didn't simply write of his own imagination or his own desires. David was led by the Spirit. They recognize that the Scriptures are not simply the ideas of men, but that there is God's intent behind all of these words. So Jesus lends great authority to this passage that he's about to quote here. How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? And if you're in Psalm 110... It doesn't take long to get there. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And if you're looking at that psalm in the Old Testament, then it's very, very likely uh, that you can see something textually in your Bibles that's important. There in verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, and the first Lord in your Bible is probably in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And if you don't know, that is the English typesetter's way of writing Yahweh, that covenant name that God gave to his people. And then the second Lord there is Adonai. Yahweh said to my Adonai. Yahweh, the Lord of all creation, said to my Lord, my sovereign, my master. Now here's the question. Who does a king call Lord? 
if you were a Jew, the greatest king you could think of was David. He represented everything that was right about the monarchy, and then there were a whole bunch of people who represented everything that was wrong with it. But if you're going to think of the greatest king that was ever in the history of your people, who does the greatest call their master? See, that's a problem for them. Because we call our kids all sorts of things, but not many of us call our kids Lord. I hope. Even kings recognized that their fathers were great. Kings recognized that they rule under the authority of their father who came before them. That's even the world understands that concept. The great kings are the ones that came before that did the great deeds. So if you're talking about the greatest king, then who can be greater than the greatest king? How is he David's son, but also clearly David's superior? Well, see, if David says this, then it means that the Messiah is the son of David. That is true. It means that he is a king. That is absolutely true. It means that he has a ruling authority. That is absolutely true. But it must mean that he is more than that. All it takes is reading through the rest of Psalm 110 to see that this is not simply another Davidic king, not even a good Davidic king. Because by the time you get down to Psalm 110, verse 4, we read it this morning as we started our service, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. No Davidic king fits that title. You can't. Your priests came from Levi, your kings came from Judah, and you could not be a priest and a king over Israel under the law, under the old covenant. This one is different. He is the son of David, but everything in this and everything, really, if you were to put the whole of the writings of the prophets together, makes it clear that he is not only the son of David, but he is the very son of God. But they cannot endure that. You can turn back to Matthew now. Because when we understand just the glimpse, just from quoting that one little bit of Psalm 110, what that means for the Messiah, how that lifts him up beyond just an earthly king, then you can understand their response. Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Because there is no answer for that. Unless you are willing to say, the Christ is more than a king. Unless you are willing to say the Christ is more than an earthly son of David, you have no response and no explanation for what David actually wrote. This is not merely David, but that he is divine. Because what they were looking for was a king, but nothing more than a king. What they were looking for was a ruler who would throw off Rome. What they were looking for was a king who would establish himself in power, but then who would allow them to worship exactly as they had been. And they had nothing to say. And nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. That's it. There are no more approaches to Jesus. They can't entrap him in his words. They can't make him look foolish because every time they do, they wind up looking like fools. But more than that, there is nothing more to say. If you go back and you read over these last couple of chapters, starting in Matthew 21, there is nothing more that could be said about the identity of this Messiah. They are not ignorant about his claims. He he comes in to the praises of the people, and they say to him, do you hear what these are saying? Stop it. Stop the children from crying out. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. He quotes a psalm that ascribes praise to God and applies it to himself. He's the son of the vineyard owner, rejected and killed. He is not only the son of David, He is not only the one who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 110 or from Psalm 118, but he is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. In the parable, he is the king whose invitation was spurned. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the lawgiver. He is the Christ, the son of David. But he's just sown that he's so much more. 
So he's taken all that was meant to entrap him, everything that was meant to make him look less than he was, everything that was meant to turn him away from the favor of the people, he's taken all of that and he's used it over and over as an opportunity to clarify who he is. So by the time you come to this point, not that we had any excuse before, but by the time you come to this point in Matthew's gospel, you are without excuse if you miss who the Christ is. And the people who were supposed to lead Israel, those who were supposed to act as their shepherds, had utterly failed. There's nothing wrong with having a priesthood. There's nothing wrong with having scribes. There's nothing wrong with having elders. These people were supposed to be like the shepherds, pointing them toward God, feeding them, guiding them. These men were supposed to be the ones who were priming them, making them ready for their Messiah when he came, and yet they were failed shepherds. That's why Jesus comes, and as he looks on the crowds in Matthew chapter 9, it explicitly says that he sees them as sheep lost, wandering, without a shepherd. And that's what he's going to do now at the beginning of 23 that we'll look at today and really throughout the whole chapter is he is going to expose the failure of Israel's shepherds. And the first thing we're going to see as we move into chapter 23 is that these men are hypocrites. Look at 23.1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples. So he's not directly confronting the religious leaders anymore. They're still there, but he turns and now he addresses the disciples and the crowds. And he does this for a couple of reasons. First of all, because he is going to show them some things that they would not necessarily assume to be true. Remember, at this day and at this time, their understanding would be that these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders, that if there was anyone holy, that if there was anyone worthy, if there was anyone clean, it had to be that group. The people would assume that if there was anyone who had a right or who had access to the coming kingdom of God, that it was these people. And Jesus shows that that is absolutely not the case. But more than that, as he addresses the crowd, as he addresses his disciples, he's going to expose failures in the religious leaders that if they're not careful, will become their failures as well. See, these are the same things that we often struggle with. You and I, some 2,000 years later, need to pay attention even to things like the woes to make sure that we don't fall under the same condemnation that the Pharisees did. Because in my heart, in my flesh, these are things that I naturally run toward. So look at verse 2. He turns and he says to them, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Now in one sense, this is a very literal and probably in a way that we wouldn't even recognize. Uh, in the synagogue, there's a seat and it's the place of the teacher. Uh, I stand to preach. They would sit to open the scrolls and to read. They would sit to read out of the law and the prophets and that seat would look something like this, like that. Now, they still have these in a couple of places, and shameless plug, if you go with us to Israel, you get to see one and maybe even sit on one. So there's that. But not only would they sit themselves on this seat, what's the point of doing that? They love to sit there because then you are the conduit through which the law comes to the people. You want to know what the law says? You go through us. You want to know what the law means? You come through us. You want to know how to apply and interpret and practice the law? You must come through us. They become the gatekeepers of truth, and they love to see themselves as the source of teaching about God. Now, there's a tension here, because Jesus has already said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. You can read through all the Gospels. Jesus never speaks against the law he never contradicts a word of the prophet. Even as he fulfills them, the Gospels make it clear that he affirms them. He's also made it clear that the teachings of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Pharisees, their false uh, doctrine is something that has to be marked out and avoided. So uh, what's the contrast here? The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. They love that place. But verse 3, so do and observe whatever they tell you. When they speak the law to you, when they read the truth to you, listen to it and do it. Just because the law of God comes out of the mouth of a scoundrel does not denigrate the law of God. But, 
do not do the works that they do. Do what they say, don't do what they do. Well, that's crept into our culture, hasn't it? The problem is not when they open up the law of Moses, that the law of Moses is bad, evil, or outdated. That law was given for divine purpose to the people of God. The law was given to the people to show what God is like. Don't lie. Why? Because God is truth. Don't murder. Why? Because God created man in his image. The law is given and it exposes the glory and the beauty and the perfections of God. And the law at the very same time shines a mirror on my sin and says, you are not this. The law reveals God and the law exposes me. That is a good function because it drives us to humility and it drives us to worship and it drives us to understand that we need something to stand between me and this perfect God that I cannot meet the standard of. But they had robbed it of any of that. He said they get up and they preach, but the words that they speak simply don't match up to the lives that they live. They preach, but they do not practice. They are the ultimate hypocrites. They will claim that they have authority. Their mouths will acknowledge them as truth, but their lives will show that that doesn't really matter at all. And you have to understand, this isn't just their failure to keep the law. This is not saying that they are condemned because they sit to teach the law and then they don't perfectly practice the law. Hypocrisy is not the same as failure. Every Sunday that I get up, the first hypocrite to speak in church is me. I've had a week to study, to prepare, to think through God's word and how to explain it and how to apply it. And I haven't had a week of perfect practice yet. Hypocrisy isn't failure. Hypocrisy is excusing or ignoring or covering over that failure even while it's being exposed. So these men are the ultimate in hypocrites. And moving on, Jesus exposes not only their hypocrisy, but their cruelty. Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. What's he talking about? He's not talking about physical burdens. He's talking about all the rules and additions that they made to the law. In the law, there are some 630-ish distinct commands, depending on who you read or how you translate them. And that's enough of a burden. When God says, be holy as I am holy, that's enough of a burden for me to bear. In fact, it's a standard that I can't meet. But for these men, that wasn't enough. They would take the demands of the law and they would pile on top of it. The law is not enough. You must now uphold the traditions and the commands of the scribes and the Pharisees that will keep you safe from ever breaking the law. And so it's not enough to simply say, don't work on the Sabbath. We are going to tell you how many steps you can take on the Sabbath. We're going to tell you how many fruit you can put into a little pile on the Sabbath before you have violated God's holy law. And it becomes this wearying burden to the people, this crushing weight of expectation that they could never dig out from under. The problem is they do that. They lay these burdens on people's shoulders and they're not willing to move them with their finger. They do nothing to relieve it. Can you imagine simply pressing down you are not enough. You must do more. You must do more. You must do more. You are failing. You are failing without ever giving any sense of help and hope. They never pointed to forgiveness. They never pointed to the mercy of God toward the weak and the broken and the failure. In fact, they wouldn't touch those people. It would be like watching the mom come out of the grocery store with the toddler in one arm and the five-year-old in the other hand carrying six bags of groceries and just watching it fall all over the parking lot and just walking by. We would look at someone and say, what is wrong with you? How can you be so callous and so cold that you don't recognize the burden that this person is under and you have every ability to help meet that and alleviate that? That's what they were doing. They saw the law. They added to the law. They watched people crushed beneath the weight of their failure to meet the law and they not once pointed to the hope that ought to be found in the God who made a way for them to be restored to fellowship. 
even the sacrifices that should have been a joyful blessing and release of sin were just another burden, just another cost to bear. Jesus shows that these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders are not admirable. They are not holy. They are unthinkably cruel. I think the last bit of what Jesus said is really dedicated to the root of all of this, and that's their pride. Look at verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. At the heart of this is they are doing this for recognition. They are prideful men. Remember back to Matthew 6, a lifetime ago, when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. When you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites because they do it to be seen. They do it in public. Their religion is a show for others, but it cannot be like that among you. You do these things in private. You do these things for God and for God alone. They do it because they love to be seen by others. It's all a show. And he gives a couple of examples. They do all these deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. What in the world does that mean? Well, phylacteries were these leather straps and boxes that they would put pieces of the law in. I think, well, there you go. That's a phylactery, and they would wear them on their foreheads or on their arms. And it's really a horrible application of Deuteronomy chapter 6, that Shema of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But later on in that Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and they shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. In other words, everywhere you go and everything you do, incorporate the wisdom of God into your life. Teach these things at all times and in all contexts to your children so that they are exposed and saturated with God's word so that they don't fail like the generations before them have. Learn to do and practice these things, but at some point along the line, it became, well, I must need a physical copy of God's word on my arm and on my forehead. And you know what? If it's good enough to put the word in a box and strap it to me, then a bigger box ought to be better. Can you imagine how foolish it would look if we just kept adding brims to our hats because somehow that made us more holy? And you see the ridiculous-sized cowboy hats. They're doing that with these boxes. And the phylacteries that just get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the tassels, those tassels that were on their garments. The law said males in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish culture had to wear these tassels on their cloaks. That was obedience. Jesus had tassels on his garments, but that's not enough for them. If your tassel was this long and it meant you were obedient, then this long must mean you're really obedient. And if I wanted you to see that I'm super obedient, it's going to go all the way to the floor. Bigger and bigger, more and more, this constant one-upsmanship that if you're holy, I'm more so. If you're right with God, I'm more right with God, and I can show you by putting stuff on the outside. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. Everyone knows when you go into a public place, there are good seats and there are bad seats. There's the dugout club and there's the bleachers. They're the places of honor and they're the places of dishonor. These guys wanted to be in the places where everybody knew the important people sat. And they loved greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Oh, they love their titles. They want to be addressed with honor and respect. It's not enough for them to know the law. They want everyone to know that they know the law and address them as such. There's still some people like this today. Last time I had my car's oil changed, I was in the lobby, and they called out uh, Mr. So-and-so, I don't remember his name, your car is ready. And he actually stood up in the middle of the oil change lobby and said, that's Dr. So-and-so. Dr. So-and-so, your Civic is ready. Who cares? It means nothing. But there's that drive to want to be recognized for who we are and for the work that we put in, and because it makes me just a little bit superior to you in some way. They loved those respectful greetings. They loved the recognition that came with that. They wanted to be the ones with the knowledge and the understanding. That is their failure. It is clear and it is public. Jesus does not take his disciples into an inner room to say this. Imagine that. To the Pharisees, whose son is the Christ? And then turning to the rest of the crowd, these guys are the problem. Do you see how this is building intention here? 
that's where he closes this. He says, you must be different. They love the respectful greetings in the marketplace. They love being called rabbi, verse 8, but you, you be different. Joe in the crowd, you must be different. Peter, among the disciples, you must be different. Disciple 2,000 years later, kingdom citizen, this cannot characterize you. You must be different. What should that look like? But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor or one leader, the Christ. Don't look for titles. These guys loved their titles. They loved that the structure showed where they ranked in the food chain, but not you. Don't look to be called rabbi, teacher. Don't, be look, don't look to be the expert. Don't look to be called father. Don't look to be the one of ultimate spiritual authority. Don't look to be instructor or leader. Don't look to be the one that has to set the program and dictate the pace. Now we might have a little struggle here, huh? Because the Spirit says that he gifts some to be teachers. And the apostles and God's word in general speaks a lot about the role of a father and the important role of being a father. We're actually called to admonish and teach and instruct one another. So what's he saying? Is there a contradiction there? No, he's saying that in these things there must be humility. Don't seek them out, but where you practice them, they have to be done in humility. Teaching in the context of the church and the home is an exercise in humility. Structure is a blessing in the church and in the home, but structure is exercised, leadership is exercised with humility. It's service to others. And we recognize that because we're no different. Don't look to be called rabbi or teacher because you're all brothers. Guess what? If we have anything to teach, it's only because God has kindly, mercifully opened our eyes so that we might understand something to pass along to others. If we have any kind of authority in the church or in the home, it's only it's a delegated authority that God has given us. And none of us are our own master. We all belong to Christ. The ones that we lead and the ones that we teach aren't our inferiors. They're our brothers and sisters. They're our equals. Verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Boy, that should sound familiar to us by this point. Matthew 18, you want to know what greatness looks like? Here's a little child. And whoever would be great in the kingdom is going to look like this little child. Humble, dependent. Matthew 20, James and John come and they ask for the places of honor in the kingdom. Jesus says, you want to be great in the kingdom? You're going to be a servant and a slave to others. Greatness in the kingdom is not measured by what you know or who you know. Greatness in the kingdom is not measured by your title. Greatness in the kingdom is not measured by how deep your downline is or how many people report to you. Greatness in the kingdom is measured by humble obedience. And what a clear contrast. Boy, you want to end the conflicts and set up where we're going in the rest of 23. That contrast that Jesus has just developed has to be absolutely clear in our mind. There's a picture of the utter failure of the religious leaders. And there's a severe warning to not only them, but to anyone who would naturally follow down that path. But what do we see in Jesus Christ? They love to be the teachers. They love to be the authority. And what do we see in Christ? One who taught with absolute authority, unquestionable authority. The one who could not only speak the law, but who could speak to the very heart of the law. And yet, he perfectly obeyed the law. Every moment, in every way, not an ounce of hypocrisy in him. Perfectly faithful and obedient. They loved to tell others how to live and those burdens that would pile up. Jesus spoke hard things. 
Repent. Turn from your sin because the kingdom is coming. Be faithful. Don't be anxious. Trust your Father. Go and preach, even though it will cost you your very life. And yet, even as he said those things, he was gentle. At the end of Matthew 28, he he doesn't break a bruised reed. He doesn't put out a faintly burning wick. This is Christ who says hard, true things, but who is humble and gentle and kind. He never looked for popularity with the right people. He didn't seek to be known by the in crowd. He didn't seek to be accepted by the elite. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He talked with the women, the Samaritans, the Gentiles. He touched the lepers. He ate with tax collectors. In a very few days, he's going to go to an upper room and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. Even as they argue over who's the greatest, the greatest will stoop down and wash their feet and then hours after that he will go to a cross. And the one who was by very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped at and held onto, but emptied himself. Taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of a man and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul's whole thrust through that argument in Philippians chapter 2, where that comes from, is that you are to have that same mind in you. A few things for us to think about. First of all, and most importantly, who is the Christ? What do you say about the Christ? They knew the Christ was the son of David. And the son of David meant that he would be the king. And being the king meant that he would kick out the Romans, and kicking out the Romans meant that Israel was back to her place of prominence and prosperity where she deserved, and they could go on doing whatever they liked. But if the Christ is more than the Son of David, if the Christ is the Son of God, then he is also going to purify your worship. He is not only going to exercise authority, he is going to demand that you submit to his authority. He is not only going to be king, he is going to be one who cleanses worship, who demands purity and righteousness. Sometimes we set up in our minds a Jesus of our own invention. We have to be careful that the Jesus that we talk about and sing about and think about is actually the Jesus that is revealed to us in Scripture. Because we can create a Jesus who is the uncompromising lawgiver, the one who is not only just, but the one who delights in punishment of others, especially others who don't think and act like us. Or maybe we crafted Jesus, who is the ever-affirming friend, who simply wants me to be happy and complete and fulfilled in my life. And then we come to the scriptures, and what do we see? That Jesus is the uncompromising lawgiver that he is perfectly just, but that he is also the justifier of those who have sinned. That he is uncompromisingly holy, but that he makes the filthy pure and clean through his work on the cross. We see the Jesus who is a kind and tender friend, the one who is a brother to us, the one who we will be co-heirs with Christ, but he is also the Jesus that says many will say, Lord, Lord, but I'll say, depart, I never knew you. Many will claim to come to me, but their lives produce no obedience. He's the friend and the brother who says that the path to blessing and fulfillment and joy isn't in my desires, but it's in following after his. So we have to be careful that when we talk about Jesus, we're actually talking about the Jesus of the Scriptures. Second, Passages like this tend to expose our hypocrisy because we are quick to condemn the Pharisees, and rightly so. In fact, Jesus will spend the next two dozen verses or so doing just that. But we better make sure that we are not following them in their hypocrisy. Why'd you sing this morning? So that others could hear you? Because it's expected when you come here? Why are you here? Because people would notice if we're not 
Why do we give? Why do I preach? Why do you serve? We're going to take communion together. Why do we do that? In what ways have we taken the truth of Scripture and simply externalized them into a coat that we put on that makes us feel better about ourselves? rather than these things being the result of hearts drawn toward obedience. And finally, passages like this ought to help us with killing our pride. If pride was at the root of their rejection, then we had better make sure that it doesn't lead to our own destruction. What sin do I refuse to confess to others and deal with because nobody can know that about me? Do I fail to pray? Do I fail to read God's word? Do I fail to minister in his strength because I'm convinced that I can do it on my own if only I would try just a little harder? Be reminded that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, demands a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees to enter the kingdom, and we fail. But what a beautiful truth to know that he is the one that provided the righteousness that we need and that those who are found in Christ are covered with his righteousness. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to miss it. Help us not to be the people that know all the answers, that have been to Sunday school since before we could walk, that have been to Awana and memorized a thousand verses, that have sat under 10,000 sermons that could tell you every passage but couldn't tell you why. Lord, make us a people who are obedient because our hearts cry out to you to make us like you. Let us be a people that are joyful in any and every circumstance because we recognize that the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords has ordained all things for his good purposes. And that means that at the end of the day, we'll look more like him and not more like we want to. Lord, help us to be a people that are robed in humility because no matter how much we know, how much we own, what letters are after our name from whatever degree we might earn. Lord, we are children desperately in need of the Father's care and guidance and love. Lord, make us fit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we come together to take communion today, uh, we have a busy week behind us, likely a busy week ahead of us, and not often that we get to stop and simply respond to meditate on these things. And perhaps God did something through his word today and exposed some areas where you need to repent and turn from these things. Take a moment to do that. Perhaps there's sin in your life that you haven't dealt with for a long time, and you know what that is far better than I do. Confess and repent of those things. Uh, we're given repeated warnings about how we approach the Lord's Supper, about how we take communion. So uh, let's take a moment to ensure that our hearts are right before the Lord. If there's a brother or sister in Christ a relationship that needs mending because you have sinned or because they have sinned against you and bitterness and resentment is built up, then take a moment to ask forgiveness of those and make plans to restore. Communion is not a magical act that ushers you into the gates of the kingdom. Communion is a heart response to the work of Christ on the cross. So before we take communion together, let's take a moment to prepare our hearts and then I'll come back and we'll take the bread together.
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, you prepared a body of sacrifice. The infinite, eternal, holy Son of God took on flesh and walked among his creation. What a remarkable, remarkable gift that you would provide the righteousness that we can never meet on our own standards. Lord, we praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. And Paul goes on to say, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Lord, we talked about covenants today. Binding agreements that you place yourself in with fallen, frail humanity. And Lord, what a blessing it is to think on the new covenant. A covenant where we cannot meet any obligation toward. There is no standard that we could do to uphold or maintain it. Lord, it is solely by your grace that you bring us into this covenant relationship with you. You are the high priest. You are the better sacrifice. And you bring us into the blessings of a new and better covenant. The law written on hearts of flesh. Sins covered by the blood of the perfect lamb. And the hope of eternal life with you. Lord, I pray that would be so fresh and so stirring and so encouraging and so consuming that we couldn't help but tell others about it until you come again. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. And until you do, make us fit and useful workers for your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.